morning, good afternoon, and good evening. My name is Josh Hodges. I'm the host of Online with an Architect. Uh, very happy to have my, my good friend and jiu-jitsu training partner, Anthony Kachu, with me today. Welcome, Anthony. It's good to be here. Fantastic. So, uh, everyone knows me. Let's do a quick intro of you. Tell, yeah. tell us what you're doing and a bit of your background. Absolutely. It's funny. I'll start with like the non-IT side because that's how we know each other. Though, mm. so, jiu-jitsu, been training there for a while, the black belt, and... I'm also a CEO and co-founder of Azure Consulting. And I started Azure about eight years ago when my co-founder, well, my mentor at the time said, hey, you know, I think there's an opportunity to start an Azure-specific consultancy inside Which of Australia. Before Azure was like really popular as well, actually, oh, Tommy-wise. Absolutely. And it was really popular in the UK. So he thought that the UK was about two years ahead of Australia. And so, and at the time, um, there's a longer story there, but at the time I had just quit my job and I was building a social enterprise cafe and I'd been doing that for about nine months and I, I was burnt out. I was just, uh, it, it was a lot of fun, but it's a crazy, crazy environment. And so the thought of going back to something that I knew, which was IT, was really, really welcome. So I, I've kind of ran back into it and I started to learn, like I've done a lot of work in the Microsoft space prior you know, but I was a journalist. So I did, I was kind of, you know, I, I'd always looked at specialist organizations and I was like, man, wouldn't it be great to just do the same thing over and over again. Mm. And now looking as a specialist organization, oh, that is great to do the same thing over and over again, because you can get better and better at it and you can go deeper into the stack. And now, you know, so eight years, we now have a, an office in the UK. There's an office in Australia. There's about 30 in Australia and about another 10 or so in the UK. Um, We'll do a lot of work with Microsoft and Telstra. We've built our own, brought our own solutions to market. And overwhelmingly, we just help customers build, migrate, and manage solutions built in Azure and Microsoft 365. Yeah, and no surprise, that's what we're going to talk about today is we're going to talk, we're going to focus on Azure and all the different capabilities, pros and cons and things like that. So I think it's going to be a really fun one. Absolutely. Yeah, so let's talk what is Azure and what is native cloud? <laughs> There's, there's an hour conversation. <laughs> yeah. A friend of mine that I we work with, he had uh, he was obsessed with language, and he went and asked everyone on the team what the word deployment, <laughs> and he got like fifteen different answers of what, what deploy was. And I know that you and I intuitively know what deployment is. You need to deploy, right? And cloud's a bit like that. So my favorite working definition for cloud is your computer, your data, someone else's computer, um, is the, probably the simplest working explanation for it. And then native cloud and public cloud being you know, one of the major hyperscalers like you know, Amazon, um, Microsoft, or Google. But the whole idea being that you're simply using their resources, they're developing them, they're providing services to you that you can use. You know, being really simple from an infrastructure standpoint, your virtual machines and starting to move into platform as a service and software as a service. So when it comes to Azure, some simple examples that people use for PaaS are things like your backup and DR services, which simply all you need to worry about is your configuration and the data. And then things such as SaaS, we start to move towards 365. When we, and that's like a collaboration suite, your, you know, your, your modern work and your email and OneDrive. When we look at something like Azure, Microsoft's in this really amazing position in that they have modern work sewed up, right? They're offering, there's nobody coming even close. So when we actually look to migrate 
customers to Azure. We're also looking at 365 as well because of the overlap of services. You're not going to move an Exchange server into Azure, at least I hope you won't. <laughs> um, you know, there's a lot of these sorts of services that will have a SaaS alternative that's way better. And then when we start to talk about cloud native, we start to talk about you know services like logical function apps that or microservice-based architecture where you can simply take something you're, that you might be running on a server, take that little function and move it into Azure. And the idea is it'll be more cost effective because rather than running a VM and going, okay, there's 730 hours in a month and I'm going to run it at full size, you pay per cycle. So what could have been, and we've had some great examples of some customers that have taken, you know, <laughs> servers that are running, you know, scheduled tasks and stuff like this, which is, which is great, moving them into functions and logic apps and going from, you know, hundreds of dollars to you know, dollars, mm -hmm. simply because if you're only paying when it's, when it cycles, that's the idea, right? So people move towards native services for a number of reasons, mostly cost effectiveness, the simplicity of scale, and also the, the ease of development because, you know, they become a lot easier and someone else like Microsoft curates the service. So it's very, it's very easy to work with. It's very well documented. It's not like you're not going to be searching like, you know, for like a lot of the open source players out there, <laughs> varying degrees of support in terms of go post in that community and hopefully you're not going to get flamed for being an idiot. But with Microsoft Tech, it's just it's well supported. It's very well documented. And the, the drivers that people move towards native is usually around cost effectiveness and scalability. Mm. Yeah, I think you touched on a point that I think is really important to highlight is when you use a hyperscaler, it is well documented. It's well known. There's a, a broad number of training programs and certifications and a lot of certified people out there that can help you with that solution. So if you build something bespoke, the person who built it is the expert. It's very rarely documented and it's very rarely got a second or third person who can support. So a hyperscaler solution like Azure, yeah. heaps of material out there. You can find it very quickly. You can learn very quickly, upskill your team, and you can get expertise like Azure to come in and help you with it um, to fill your gaps. So I think you know, building something bespoke versus off the shelf in Azure, like yeah. it, it's a no-brainer to try and go down that route. Definitely. Especially for something that's net new. I think you've obviously oh. you've got legacy infrastructure. Oh, yeah. We'll talk a bit about that later. But for something net new, you know, to build your own bespoke infrastructure is, is a little bit crazy. Like you're just going to pay my company a lot of money to design you something that already exists somewhere else. So well, yeah, but, this is a great question because we get into the monolithic versus microservices based architectures and some of those conversations, which is, you know, I think heavy conversations so early on. But I agree, right? Like I look at cloud native as the virtualized first approach with, you know, Josh, you and I are showing our age when we start talking about that sort of approach. There was a time when you wouldn't virtualize first and you just get yourself a little pizza box. It was about how small the box was you could put in the server rack that didn't take up that much space. You know, that DC running on the pizza box is mm. crazy. A great example of something we'd never do now. And, you know, we have a, this sort of virtualized first methodology and the same for cloud native. If a cloud native or SaaS alternative exists, we should use it unless there is good reason not to use it. And those good reasons can be, you know, you or your needs don't exactly align to what it can do. And I, I've actually had some customers in the 365 space and, and, and okay, this has been like 10 years. I think I've had one or two. Okay, mm. that's, so I've seen hundreds if not thousands of customers in that time. 
and there were one or two that didn't quite fit neatly into it because they were a huge Apple environment. So all of a sudden, the whole AD organization, who needs that? We're Max, you know, and usually Max is just a small subset of the entire environment. So you don't really have to worry about that. Um, but most of the time, you can fit into that ecosystem of like, okay, I should be able to use these services because it works. And to take that methodology, and so you can kind of ask that question because a lot of the time with public cloud is that people simply aren't aware of what's possible. So if you start with a methodology or at least a, a framework of let's you look for a cloud native alternative first, exhaust that proposition or exhaust that alternative before, you know, spitting up a VM or doing some of that, you'd be rewarded for it. And especially if you choose some of the services in, Microsoft, in Azure, you know, they'll be supported by Microsoft and all that kind of fun stuff. And there's some great things like increasingly for customers, you know, even some third-party services we've been suggesting there's Radius as a service, you know, for those people that are still using NPS servers and all that kind of fun stuff, Radio 2.1X, you know, there are services that exist you can use, but, you know, you look at the price points, do they make sense? Uh, and a good example of that, when we first, when Microsoft first released Azure Active Directory Domain Services, so that was their, um, their PaaS instance of AD, um, it was really kind of a cool idea because customers like, sweet, I don't have to worry about building a domain controller, Microsoft manages it. But the problem was like with a lot of PaaS services, like there are going to be restrictions on what you can do and where you can do it. You know, the sorts of changes you can make to the, um, the schema are obviously going to be very different to what you could do to your own schema. And when you looked at the base cost of like running it, it wasn't too dissimilar to having two domain controllers in Azure. Mm. So, you know, so there was that kind of, and then, there was no migration path either. So the amount of customers that I've had to kind of talk off or talk out of, oh, I want to, you know, migrate my domain. I'm like, I don't get me wrong. I'd happily help you do that. But migrating is a rebuild and rebuild of domain is not insignificant. And I was actually talking about this with a friend of mine yesterday where I got to the point where I was, you know, customers would come to me and say, hey, I'm tired of that dot local. I'd love to change that to the at domain. Mm. And I'm like, before we go anywhere, just letting you know that's like a hundred grand, mm. you know, just, just, just before you get out of bed, you know, it's so expensive and people, what, what are, you, what are you talking about? It's just changing that one little thing. And I'm like, there is so much reliance on it. Mm. And there are probably services you've got an idea, you have no idea. There are groups, security groups, all these sorts of things you've got, you've got no idea what's going on. Right. Mm. So we've got to unpick all of that. So before I even go down that path, I'm saying, are you prepared to spend a lot of money for this? If the answer is no, then let's just move on hmm. because there are other things we can do more, you know, better ways to spend that money. Yeah, absolutely. I think that just shows expertise as well. It's, oh, you want to do something? Just FYI, this is a ballpark of what you're looking at. Um, and then the customer can make a decision whether they want to go down that route or not because otherwise they might start that project, get somewhat into it and realize we can't stop now. Yes. And then they actually have this unbudgeted project, which is quite expensive and high impact and a lot of implications. So I think that's just a, a great example of, of an architecture methodology saving a customer from a lot of pain. Absolutely. And, you know, there's customers we've run into, unfortunately not too many, um, where they've moved to Azure and they haven't optimized their workloads and they're just bleeding from the eyes. Mm. And they're like, oh, Azure's crap. And I'm like, well, no, it's just what's happened here is, you know, and it's not your fault. You know, perhaps they were, you know, maybe 
they weren't familiar with what's available. The reality is that if you just take what you've got, <laughs> like move it to Azure, it's not going to be cost effective. Yeah. There needs you need to look at it. You have to look at how they're going to do it. Um, you know, what can we optimize? Does that service need to be there? You know, in order to get the benefit of cloud, you have to buy in to the methodology, mm. right? If I'm just like, well, I was running this on my on-prem and now I'm running that in Azure, you're not going to get the value because there's more to it than that, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's why we work together as well. End-to-end -end in Azure, we align on that methodology. We do health checks. We make sure yeah. we know what's going on. We don't migrate unnecessary stuff. Um, and if there's an opportunity, which we'll cover off a bit more, you know, where it's, say, a VMware environment, they want to go into Azure, well, there's a, a hop, step, and a jump approach, which allows us to do that a bit easier. So uh, I guess actually that leads us into our next point, which is we've talked a little on native cloud. Yeah. Um, now, what's the alternative to native cloud? It's it's really solutions like Azure VMware solution where you've got a, a hypervisor sitting on top of the, of the hyperscaler and it allows us to move your VMware workloads into Azure remaining on that VMware environment, um, which you could stay there forever indefinitely if you wanted. Yeah. Um, or you can use that as like a landing zone to then start your modernization journey and do that with lower risk and with lower latency towards those native services. So I think that's a good example of, you know, native cloud or public cloud is no longer just you have to transform everything yeah. day one. You can actually go in there with very little change. You can do a lift and shift effectively. Uh, and then you can go modernize after that. So that's why I'm such a huge fan of that. And obviously, once end-to-end -end gets customers onto AVS, you know, that, that's where you jump in and, and do that modernization piece and, and optimize as well. Absolutely. And, you know, we talk of revolution or evolution, right? Like, it just comes down to what's, 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 the, what's the customer's appetite for change? You know, so, and also the capability, the appetite and capability for change, because it's not just the technology there. It's all well and good for me to give you the keys to a Ferrari and you don't know how to drive, mm. right? There's also the, the other aspect, perhaps the less sexy aspect of the cloud operating model or what you might refer to as the center of excellence, which is the idea that if I'm going to give you the keys to a Ferrari, you're going to know how to drive, mm. right? And so with these sorts of things, I, I look at the, okay, let's look at the technology. Let's look at how far you want to go. Let's look at how far you can go. And then what's the gap in between you being able to, um, you know, drive this amazing vehicle that we made for you. Mm -hmm. And that's also what's going to dictate it, right? Like uh, so many customers move. And whilst there's so many things we could do, there's only a couple we should do. Mm -hmm. And I look at like infrastructure as code as an example of that. Like the people that ask me about infrastructure as code for workloads that they're simply going to deploy once, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense because the idea is that you're going to write once, deploy many times. Mm. And so it's the same thing for customers moving to cloud. That's why I'm a big fan of having an option like ABS. It's not an all or nothing approach, mm. right? There are hybrid options that are available that can meet you where you are, right? You love, you have an incumbent investment in skills in AVS and VMware solution, I should say, or a VMware, that's very simple for you to kind of move into Azure and then become aware of the greater ecosystem that's around that. There are services that Microsoft have, cloud native services in Azure, that do not require you to spend umpteen dollars getting, oh, I've got to move everything into there. One of my favorite ones is logic and function apps. I like them because they can be a replacement for common tasks. Mm. I like them that they're a replacement for... Um, you know, uh, task servers or just simple things you want to do. I, you know, I, data comes in to this source and I, I transform it and I move this. Something happens, event-based architectures. Hmm. And they're really simple. They're really visual. And 
they're going, you've already, you're already going to be doing it. Maybe you're doing it with PowerShell scripts, maybe you're doing it with task services or some of those lines. So it's something you're already doing, but this is super easy, super visual. So from a supportability standpoint, we talk about some of the non-tangibles, mm-hmm. which is not just like, okay, it's cheap and easy, but also someone else can pick it up. They can go there and they can read it. They can see the logical flow. Oh, okay. So email comes in, you do this, this happens here. I process this, I move it over there. Okay. You can embed you know, code into it, but it's largely very visual and makes it very easy to support as opposed to some PowerShell script that's, you know, 100 years long um, that is indecipherable. And that's the kind of things you can do around the peripheral. I like to tell customers it's not an all or nothing approach. In fact, it's very much kind of choose your own adventure in a manner that makes the most sense to you. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's that's where the world's heading is, is everything's hybrid. Uh, everyone wants choice. Uh, people don't want to throw away investment in skills or, or technologies. Um, so that's why I'm a real fan of these hypervisor and hyperscaler solutions is I just feel like it's an easy way for customers to get an environment that's pre-packaged, pre-built, well-documented, just like I was saying about Azure, you know, native services, well-documented, lots of skills available. You can move there without much change uh, and get something that works. And then from there, yeah, you can test things. You can see what works, what doesn't. You can go back and forth and you can position workloads where they're best fit within the same data center effectively. So within Azure, you can have your VMware environment, you can have native services, and they all just work together, and they're close. That's the other thing. There's not this massive latency gap between workloads, which can cause huge problems. Uh, So I feel like that's a hybrid model that's probably going to become very, very popular um, because some workloads, legacy workloads, might be difficult to migrate and transform, but AVS has that covered. And then anything net new comes in native, and then you end up with that nice hybrid. So I, I think it's just the easy button for customers. Yeah, and, and again, I'm going to kind of focus on some of the, the non-technical side, the people side, which is gives you time, you know, for those customers out there that are feeling the pinch. One of some of the reasons we see people making a choice towards AVS as well is around there's a push for cloud. Mm. Okay, well, we now have your cloud service, okay? But you can do it in a manner that's not terrible, Um one of the funny things that had just happened to me personally, uh, my my medical, my healthcare, um, they updated their portal. And originally the portal they had uh, for this, this private healthcare provider was, it was it was like a gem of the, of the 90s. It was functional, but, you know, not pretty. But you know what? I don't need that much from it. I need to be able to update details, maybe put your credit card in, put claims in. And they went through this exercise of um, modernizing it, you know, giving it that UX, that beautiful reactive UX. Uh, and in doing so, stripped out all the features. So uh, it, it was breathtaking what they did. So they took a perfectly serviceable portal and probably because of time constraints or commitments or whatever, they released a portal that you could do this much. You could log in. You could log in and you could... Oh, okay. I could see my cover. I couldn't do anything else. Mm. You wanted to do anything? There was a. They actually it was nice. They actually had um, an online chat. You could click on. No, sorry, you can't use that. Uh, there's been too many calls now. We've turned this off. You have mm. to call us. Uh, maybe don't call us because we've got a backlog until the end of October of mm. issues to deal with, where people have just for the sake for no reason whatsoever, mm. they rushed the deployment of this software. And then they released it with fewer features that were currently available. And but just to tick that box that it's in it's the To tick that box you know, when you didn't you need are. to. They didn't need to do any of that. You know, it was who was yelling to upgrade that portal? 
you know, nobody was. And so it's the same idea here, right? So it's one of those sorts of things where this don't do things unnecessarily when you need time to release a new portal takes time mm-hmm. and the goal should be i would feel hopefully to be at the very feature parity at the very least not to lose oh, stuff. at minimum yeah if, if you're moving from a to b and, and you're not Ooh. at minimum at parity there's a big problem all right so maybe we'll, we'll now talk about you know projects and how we should approach them and, and what's a smart way to to go about uh, not rushing these projects to market and, and causing problems like ruining portals for your health insurance customers <laughs> yeah it's yeah, a great question so when it comes to these sorts of things, like the first question is always a pragmatic one, which is my goal isn't to maximize and put every single feature in that Azure supplies, right? The goal is to figure out what's possible and what makes sense for you. I talk about what you could do and what you should do. And so a lot of that's going to be driven not just by you know, technological reasons, where we're coming from, will have some influence over where we're going. It's also capability. So then we look at the evolution versus revolution. How far can I go before it becomes uncomfortable or unrealistic, right? I want it to be a little bit uncomfortable because we're doing something new. There should be a degree of lack of comfort. If it's like entirely the same, then perhaps the, you know, it's, it's the hardware refresh of cloud migrations, which is not getting the value of cloud because you're probably, you know, you're not touching the cloud native services. So realistically, it starts with that, men- um, that mentality. A lot of time I'll work with customers and we'll simply talk about what are you trying to do? What's possible? This is what's possible in, in, in Azure. What are your drivers? Because there's always different drivers. There can be time constraints, which is often one. If it's a time constraint, then you're probably going to choose a solution that's a little simpler because, you know, transformation takes time. It takes time because apps need to be rewritten. And that's actually frequently a conversation we find ourselves having with customers, which is to manage expectations, right? Like if I want to rebuild your application, if I want to make it entirely cloud native, if I want to re-architect it, that takes time. There needs to be a regression test and all this sorts of fun stuff just to get to the same feature parity level. So that's why I kind of want to be realistic with the customer about what they can achieve in the time frame, And also take a multi-phase view on say, look, it's not just one movement now. It's a multi-year strategic approach where we're going to be basically, you know, we're going to start with the low-hanging fruit, which is the services that are simple to replace or augment. So these are things like, you know, I have an exchange server. It should be in 365. These are things like, you know, services like DNS, right? Like, just use Azure. Like, if you're used to using your third-party host of DNS, well, there are DNS options that exist within Azure. So you'll find that there's these logical um refactoring candidates that a lot of people are going to use, you know, DR, backup, all those sorts of things, storage. And then there'll be some of the ones that are a little more difficult. Okay, some of the, you know, your custom scripts, let's look at logic and function apps. And I want to introduce you to what's capable in a way that makes sense. Mm. I was talking about this with my, um, one of my architects yesterday. We're talking about AI. Um, And I was talking about the fact that when we look at AI, which is such a fun topic, you, that the first project you should look at should be modest, should be humble. As, as much as that's crazy, because the, the reality is that first project is going to be a big one anyway, right? It's going to be a big one because of the skills, getting familiar with the tools, you know, putting all the plumbing in place to be able to work with AI, all those sorts of things. That's there. That's this iceberg of, of things you need to do that aren't there for the second project. So if we have a project that's this big, it's still this big, because of all that work you need to do to get familiar with the platform, to get skilled, to get the plumbing done, to be able to have the data in accessible format, to make sure it works. 
you know, from our perspective, the, in the way that we're using AI, it started with us actually transforming a couple apps, changing them, right, taking off-the-shelf software, and then we opted for ones that natively integrated into Microsoft's Dataverse and actually reside in the Power Platform, right, so that we could very easily interact with the API. All this work's needed to be done so that we actually have a very hilarious implementation of AI. We actually have um, AI that re reads and reviews tickets that come in that are unclassified and unprioritized, and then classifies them, prioritizes them, and sign them, and simply reads them. And, but to do that simple, simple thing, you need to be able to have API access to the data source. It needs to be able to look at what's going on. It needs to be able to interact with the apps. Mm. They need to be built in such a way that that's actually possible. And that in itself is all the work. The actual AI side of the fence is actually relatively straightforward. So then that's why I kind of encourage people to take a more modest view with these new technologies that they emerge because that's going to maximize your chance of success because that first project, even modest, is still a big one. And then you can start to look at a much more or less modest mm. project in the second instance. Yeah, absolutely. I think just setting expectations is always something that's uh, very important at the start of a project and making sure you've got something measurable from a business perspective and a technical perspective to actually aim for. And that's just architecture 101, I think, which is sadly missing in the industry, which is why we exist, I guess. Yeah, so, yeah I would say people, they wouldn't need us if they could understand these principles. Yeah, absolutely. So hybrid solutions. So we touched on it already. So you know, yeah. the customer's looking to, you know, optimize. Mm -hmm. So we do an assessment, we look at their environment, yeah. we get rid of anything that's unnecessary and get rid of any waste. We, we move them into AVS. And then from there, we've got all these opportunities. So, yeah. you know, we can obviously, you know, lift and shift, you know, the, the bulk of their stuff in uh, without taking over a lot of inefficiency. But I think that step into AVS addresses the problem you raised earlier, which is if you just move it from on-prem VMware into native instances, first of all, a big transformation. But assuming that was just a click, it's going to be far more expensive to do that without any sort of optimization than going into AVS, which is one of the huge value props, I guess, uh, of being able to overcommit and benefit from compression and all the virtualization benefits we all know. Uh, so to me, those projects that you don't want to you know, be rushed because yeah, of cost, for example. AVS is kind of that enabler to get the workloads onto Azure, <clears throat> look at them, assess them, start your project, run through, you know, obviously in a timely manner, but you're not rushing it. Uh, and you're doing it while your workload is running very reliably and safely and at a cost-effective price in AVS uh, alongside where you're doing your development. And then that enables you to do like a pilot of some of these new services um, if they work, fantastic. You can go from pilot to production. If they don't work, well, that's fine. You continue working as you are and you don't have to do this bulk migration back. In um, one way. <laughs> yeah, which, which is horrendous. Like no one should be trying to go from where they are today to the destination in one step. Oh, yeah, definitely a recipe for disaster, to be sure. Um, you know, especially when hybrid solutions, you know, Microsoft's been improving a lot of the hybrid tech that exists, you know, from you know, things like Azure Arc and some of these other tools that allow you to kind of, you know, what they're blurring the line of where that cloud data center edge resides and they're making it simpler for you to kind of have more workloads with that same kind of cloud management overlay, which is what we start to talk about some of the value proposition that Microsoft brings that make it easier. And especially with some of these solutions like ABS in terms of, well, then that's just blurring the lines of, again, your data center, where it is, what it resides, the tools you're used to and familiarity. Because at the end of the day, it's simply about, you know, we want to be able to get you to the cloud. We want to make, we want it to make sense for you. 
whatever that is. And sometimes the cloud isn't the option, right? Like that's the other reality. I, you know, I think I was seeing workloads like pure cloud being like 22% or something of all workloads, right? But, and there's the reasons for that as well. You know, it could be connectivity, it could be a specific way your workload works and or the performance requirements that could dictate, you know, increasingly that, that conversation and as we start to have better connectivity and mm. and you know lower latency that exists between different silos inside of and services inside of Azure, it's becoming less relevant, but it's still there, absolutely. And you know, one of the first things that I'll talk about with the customer too is I'll, I'll really kick the tires of like I'll ask that kind of seemingly sacrilegious question for someone that specializes in Azure. It's like why even do it? Because mm. that like I need to be convinced you know, of what you're trying or what we're trying to do here. You know, why are we moving? Are we moving for the sake of moving? What's the problem we're solving? What's the thing we're enabling? What's the, what's the edict? Because to be honest, um, and this is not always popular answer, but the truth is doing nothing is a valid uh, approach in, in many, in some instances in mm -hmm. terms of from an architectural standpoint, because ultimately we're constrained by resources. And if we spend, if we put money in this area, it means we can't put it somewhere else. And there could be things that are put more pressing that you need to address. So realistically, that'll also start there as well, just so I can get a feel for, you know, why do anything at all, right? Let's start there and then build out from there and have a look at how hybrid works. And again, like I said, to your point there, it, there's a lot of environments where it's going to make a hell of a lot of sense in terms of I got my I got this huge investment in VMware. Should I throw it out? Nope. Why do that? It's a it's an investment. It's like a lot of things. Like sometimes customers will come to me and they've, they've developed a lot of cloud native capabilities in AWS and you know and whilst the simple answer might be like hey let's rip you out and put you into Azure, that's not always the way, right? Because this it's not just the cloud native app that they've built. It's all the skills around it. Right. All my apps, all my devs, they're all AWS certified. My my engineers are all AWS. It means the cost of moving isn't just the, the infrastructure, it's the skills. And it's just, you know, so from the same story here, okay, you've got these great VMware skills that are highly born um, you know, that's sought after in this industry. Am I just gonna what am I going to do with that, right? Well, the thing is, we can also take them on a journey, stay, work with AVS, start to introduce some of these other components that they can do as well. And we talk about that cloud operating model. Where do you want to go? What do we need to do in order to get there? And so that's one of the things that I absolutely look out for beyond just the technical is also, you know, the people side and the process side, because it's definitely a big part of IT. Uh, it's a massive part, and I think the the equivalent from a, a cloud native perspective versus an, an on prem or a hypervisor type is the Nutanix and VMware piece. So if someone's yeah. Nutanix on prem, cool. Well, maybe moving them into Azure a VMware solution is not the quickest and easiest route to get a similar outcome. Absolutely. So going into Nutanix cloud clusters or NC two on Azure is a valid path as well. So you know if someone's got all their skills in Nutanix, moving them onto vSAN. Both products are pretty simple these days, but still it is a shift. So, you know, going into that solution and that's one great thing about Azure is they support both. So yeah. you can have some Nutanix on NC2 in Azure. You can have some AVS in Azure, obviously, and then you can have your, your native piece and native services. Um, and some customers have all three. Yeah. I've known customers to do all three and, uh, that's fine as well. And at some point, they're going to make a decision, you know, which of the, the three they're going to keep. They're probably going to keep two. Um, but, yeah, let, let's take the easy route. And switching yeah. someone just for the sake of going from one to the other is not always a good move from an organizational perspective, even if it might be technically justified, one product slightly superior to the other yeah. in one area. If, it, if it's not a massive benefit to the business 
then that change is, is not well justified. Again, definitely. One of the earliest things that I'd learned when I first became an architect, I thought it was all about speeds and beads. And <laughs> um, I would just, <laughs> yeah, you know, you get lost in all the tech. Oh, you know, it's particularly I was an exchange administrator and I would talk about how the data, I was, I was, I was, I loved how it was replicating across from databases and stuff like that. And I remember I was talking to like a GM and it was just looking at me with glazed eyes. Mm. And one of the hardest things was to just abstract away, pull out of that, mm. pull out of this, this view of just the tech and moving back and then teaching simultaneously a lot of my team that, you know, you can't have everything. You know what I mean? So we can't always do vendor best practice, guys, because, you know, sometimes I like to use the example of um, ADFS, so Federation Services. The full ADFS deployment is, I think, it's six servers or eight servers, and I've never seen anyone do that. You know, it's because you've, you've got the DMC, the proxy, the internal layers and all this sort of stuff. People just use two, you know, but the vendor suggests six. <laughs> and... It's the same thing here. And it's a case when I've talked to a lot of my engineers and my team, it's like, well, we have to look at what they're trying to achieve and we have to recognize they have limited resources. And you have to say, well, what, what would you love to have? You can't have everything. So what would you love to have? And let's work with that and let's prioritize those things because, you know, it's a very rare occasion where a customer comes to you and says, look, I've got unlimited budget. Let's do everything, right? It's more realistic. They'll say, look, here's my constraints. Here's my budget in one of them. And what can we achieve, realistically achieve in this time frame? And that's the other part as well. I think being a good service provider, you're, you know, it's, it would be very easy just to say yes to everything. Oh, yeah, we can do that. No problems at all. We can transform that app. And then six months later, to, you, know, you mentioned this earlier, you know, we, we're looking for variations because, yeah, there's no way we could do that. You know? But we're just so eager to win the deal or whatever that you're, you're kind of going to talk about that. At the end of the day, I'd much rather just have that conversation. Let's be realistic about what can be achieved in this time frame. If anyone else is telling you otherwise, you know, you just be mindful or wary that there's probably strings attached to that, you know, assumptions, mm-hmm. you know, especially when we look at, you know, often customers will push us from our own, from our, you know, we need you to, you know, we need you to move really quick and rebuild and do all this sort of stuff. And I'm like, the thing is, I know we can do that relatively efficiently, but there's so much on your end, so much testing. You know, if I change something and I rebuild it, rebuilding it, Okay, it's not too onerous, but all the testing you do on your side to make sure the application actually functions as you expect, especially if you know we're changing to like a modern development platform. You know, to be honest, the chain what we do is like one tenth of what needs to happen behind the scenes in terms of the code changes and updates and testing and pushing to your environments. And that's something that you know I think that customers don't always appreciate is that when you're dealing with this uh, with like a with a professional services organization or you know, service provider, they know these projects really, really well. So when customers kind of push me on, you know, I'll, I'll push it this time frame and I compress it, you know, the reality is that I can probably meet nearly any one of those, um, those time frames with the right appropriate dependencies and assumptions hmm. because I've done this project a hundred times. Hmm. I know where it blows out. I know where the effort lies. So one of the things that I work to do in my business is make sure that I don't, you know, often you'll have those lists of assumptions that they give you. Um, I call it out. I color code them. Mm. I'm like, this is really important that you understand these assumptions. It's red because this is where so often customers fall over, Mm. you know, because ultimately when a customer pushes you, I push back, but to say, well, this is what you need to know. I need to really make sure you understand that. Yeah, we can do this, 
but how much resource time do you have on your side, mm. right? This isn't just me. Yeah, it's and not then, just the provider. It's actually a, a collaborative approach. So to your point about it's, you know, the enterprise has to deal with this project. It, it's not just the architect or the engineer. It's yeah. the whole company who has to get involved. Yeah. Um, and like you say, assumptions, I mean, as an architect and, and yourself as well, it's like, you know, if there's an assumption, it's just a risk. And then there's a mitigation to the risk. And then we Correct. go in that rabbit hole. So yes. I say the same thing to customers. You've given me all these assumptions. I'm not happy to even start the project yet because I need you to understand that all the risks that come along with these assumptions, if that one is wrong, your price will double. And they look at you like this. I'm like, no, I'm just telling you in advance. Sure. If that assumption is wrong, your, your price will go up significantly. You know, and, and the obvious one is like compression and dedupe. <laughs> right? Yeah, that's obviously you're falling off your chair laughing because it's so true. People assume we're going to get four to one or eight to one or some crazy number yeah. and they end up getting two to one. And, you know, the, the thing I laugh about that is if you don't get that and assuming you go with a vendor who gives you a guarantee, okay, what is that guarantee actually worth? Oh, They're going to give you free kit. Okay, free like a puppy because now you've got to maintain it. You've got to put it in the rack. You've got to power it. You've got to cool it. You've got to, you know, all this stuff that comes along with that extra um, free hardware um, is not worth it. That actually might impact your total cost of ownership uh, in terms of operational costs, obviously data center space and cooling. If that tips you over into a new rack and you're paying per rack, those extra 4RU or 8RU of of drives – you know, could make it not viable to have gone with that solution. And I've seen that before. So wow. assumptions like storage and overcommitment ratios and, and DG, all this sort of stuff, I hate them. So yeah. when I do sizing, I assume it's zero. Perfect. And customers say, oh, that, that's a little bit, you know, why would you assume zero? I'm like, well, if I assume zero, right, I know I'm right. right? There's not a, no longer an assumption. Yeah. We're just assuming we're getting nothing. And if you get any benefit at all, it's to your advantage. So if we can make the total cost of ownership and the return on investment happen at zero, then you're having a good day, right? But yeah, yeah, assumptions are the worst. So in in all my design documents, I'm the same as you. I'm like calling them out. It's the first part of the document. Everyone has to read it. Like I force feed it down people's throats because if you you make an assumption and you're wrong, yeah, it's a bad day. Absolutely. And, you know, I think to your point as well, like when I do the Azure migrations, we do the same sort of thing. I actually do as is. So I'm not, you know, because it's very easy and you'll see it time and time again, but they're like, okay, with these servers, you know, the 95th percentile is a server at one-tenth the size. (laughs) But there's a reason that it was sized at that original size. Mm. And so when I do these migration assessments, often um, I like to leave the high watermark. Mm. You know, this is, it can be no worse than. Yeah. It couldn't be, this is is it. I expect it's going to be better, much like you do with YouTube, right? I expect it to be much better, right? Because nary, there's never an environment that it hasn't been better. Mm. But then I'm appropriately managing expectations. Mm. Oh, but, you know, but provider X said that it would be half the price. I'm like, well, we're both moving to the same platform. We're both using the same data, yeah. right? I'm just being realistic to say, okay, you're gonna, we're going to give you all those advantages. Mm. You know, like anybody would, right? Like if anyone moves, they're going to get dedupe, right? Mm. And they're going to get the same dedupe from me for using for both using the same platform. Where if all the providers use the same platform, they're going to get exactly the same dedupe. Yeah. But I'm going to be the one that's going to be realistic to go, well, in my experience, <laughs> no, I can bet the business outcome on exactly. a variable is exactly. basically what it comes down to. We're going to guarantee a business outcome and 
it's going to be better than what we promise every time. Every time. Um, and I'm not going to do work and none of my team do work that's anything other than that. What we say is going to be the outcome is what you will get or better. I agree. It's, it's a safe place and also for a customer as well to, to appreciate that that's, that's who I want to be dealing with. At the end of the day, you know, I want to deal with somebody that's going to be you know, treating me openly, honestly, mm-hmm. just tell me, even though I don't want to hear it, you know, the amount of times I'm telling, dealing with my dev team and they'll, they'll give me a date <laughs> that I don't like yeah. you know, for some of the development we're doing internally. And they're like, what, do you want me to lie to you? <laughs> you know? Then the question simply becomes, okay, if I don't like that date, what can I do to pull it in? Hmm. But it's not going to be they work hard. It's going to be, you know, what additional resources can I, hmm. other things I can do? Can I take workload off here? Can we, can we cut feature development here? Can we focus on this? Like, it's going to be something has to change. You don't just get a better date and nothing changes. Something has to change in that triangle of like price, quality, and time, right? Yeah. Something's got to give. Which one is it? Exactly. And, and that's exactly what we want to, those are the sorts of best relationships. So if we move into like the best relationships with the customers in terms of these sorts of approaches, it's, I'd say, very much trust, but I think that trust is earned through our capability. We're approved. We know what we're talking about, uh, but also, you know, allow us to you know, be realistic with you in terms of this is where it is. And this is, we're always going to be honest with you. And, and the best thing you can do is, allow, is, is, I guess, be aware of what's, what's required on your side. Mm. You know, there, there is going to be things required. Sometimes, funnily enough, some of the, I've had some amazing customers and that they just completely trust you, but they're completely hands off. Mm. And that's like, it's it's almost like oh I, I love that you trust us so much but I actually need your input yeah <laughs> yeah I'm sure you've had that I, I have I, I love it when the customers ask you to write down their requirements <laughs> and uh, I mean I know why they're asking and, and there's some merit to that but yeah. overall no this is me asking you right I'm interviewing you as a stakeholder because I want to know what you expect so yeah. that I can translate that into an outcome yeah um, and work out all the steps in between. So, yeah, it's great when they give you that trust, but at the same time, you know, I want to collaborate too. I just don't want to come in behind the scenes, do the work, and it's just done. I mean, that sounds great, but I think building a relationship with a customer, um, especially a long-term one, is much more important for for both sides. And also the word cookie cutter comes to mind, you know, Mm -hmm. where people can kind of, at the end, why why, why does this look... You know, doesn't look that doesn't exactly match our requirements. Well, that's what we need from you. It's just we do need you to kind of drive us mm. because when we move to Azure, there are different pressures for people, and that absolutely influences what the the, the approach we take. You know, you know, for example, Chef Twenty Twelve. Uh, we'll do a public service announcement. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, I think it's the end of support in like a couple of days. Mm. You know, so Microsoft offers an additional three years support for you to Azure. Um, so these sorts of things, if you've got a driver and you, that's it, and that's a, a significant a driver, <laughs> yeah, no more security patches for you. Stick. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Unless you're just like going to cull them from the environment and mm. throw them behind 16 firewalls. Yeah. Um, but you know, those sorts of drivers can be like, okay, guys, we're going to move. We're going to move quick as opposed to, and that, those sorts of things I would advise you to definitely um, talk to your, your professional services um, partner about because, they influence things. Knowing that that's the driver, the driver is, you know, to be honest, we've had a edict from the board. We've been, you know, we've, we've experienced a breach before, and the, the board is very cybersecurity conscious. So there, this is that's the, the reason we're moving to Azure. That actually does put the finger on the scale in terms of what we're going to focus on, mm. and perhaps some of the suggestions we're going to make when it comes to those technologies. Maybe we'll focus a bit more on the identity and have a little 
deeper look into Active Directory or start to look at things like Sentinel and Defender and some of those other products that are sit around the edges of these, in these ecosystems, because that all kind of influences it. And that's how we can make the, the project even more successful, because if your stakeholders, to your point, they're asking for these things, then we want to make sure we show them as part of that, you know, part of that end product. Mm. And maybe it only changes the project 5%, but that 5% may be the, the 5% that the board loves. Yeah, it's the know? most impactful piece, obviously, yeah. Absolutely. For us, like all the work will be in kind of setting it up, moving it across, doing all the landing zone work. But the most impactful part is that 5% where all of a sudden, oh, wow, I didn't realize we could, you know, we've got these things like called Azure Initiatives, which are, you know, sets of policies and standards that you can apply inside of Azure. You know, most commonly things like um, SIS Benchmark and ISO 27001 and stuff like that. So, you know, that you can kind of make that process of complying with these security standards even easier in future. And those sorts of tools can be really big wins because when you start to look at the overhead in maintaining compliance with these standards, at least ISO 27001, mm. it can be onerous and being able to have these, you know, a lot of the work already done in terms of because we've configured it and set it up in a certain way and then being able to show that back to the business mm. where they've made and typically nobody walks towards ISO 27001 just cause mm. it's usually Usually there's a strategic driver. Maybe it's an advantage that they like to have. They're in the defense or a contract industry where that's really, really important or perhaps it's a way they can differentiate from their competitors that they have these standards they adhere to. And you can show that back and that stakeholder is going to really very much appreciate that. Yeah, and without that stakeholder input, you can't show traceability from the solution back to the business because you haven't got anything to trace. So. Yeah, to me, it's it's incredibly important. So those stakeholder interviews, write everything down, you know, translate it into something that makes sense and is measurable. And then at the end of the project, you say, hey, here's how we achieved all these things. Or even at the design phase, here's how yeah. we are going to achieve them. And here's how we're going to validate that our design's actually going to do and the implementation is going to do what we say. And then the customer gets these artifacts and they yes. can go, oh, cool. We, these are the things we've done. And then like a CIO can put that in a summary and go, all right, here's what we've achieved. Uh, so I think that's really important as well is not just giving them the outcome, but helping them understand what they've achieved and give them artifacts to validate it. I, I totally agree. And showing, showing, it, showing what we've done because so often what we do in IT is behind the scenes. Mm. It's behind the scenes. And as I would say, nobody, nobody thanks you for keeping the lights on. Mm. You know, and a lot of what we do is that, but increasingly, and especially with these sorts of solutions we're talking about here, and the likes of ABS and moving towards hybrid, we're opening up IT to be that enabler to what I see IT as is problem solvers. Mm. Like we've got an amazing toolkit here. Mm. You look at all the other stuff, we start to look in Azure around cognitive services and AI models and all this sort of stuff, but you've got to be there. You need to be in the cloud to be able to use this. I talk about the plumbing. We've got to get the plumbing done. Yeah. And that means we need to stand up ABS. We need to get those workloads into clouds. We need to get that landing zone sorted. We need to talk about storage, mm. right? And before we can even talk about open AI models and, and mm. stuff like this, we need to talk about is your, is your stuff in the cloud, right? Yeah. And Are you enabled to take advantage of these capabilities? And that's what we exactly. want to do. We want to get that baseline layer or the 101 is what I call it. Yeah. And I would say like in my career, you know, people go, oh, you're VCDX, you're whatever. Yeah, 90% of my work is the 101, is getting yeah. the baseline foundation of a customer right so that they can put the layers on top. Because yeah. the moment that foundation is not there, it's like a building. It just comes down. Absolutely. Especially yeah. from a security standpoint, and, you know, it's, yeah, if you build it, if you've got a floor in your, your templates, you deploy them, you know, it, it's, 
you know, there's oh, that's another that's another conversation from a hyperscaler perspective. But it's exactly that. Like it's not sexy, and, and it's the same thing I'll talk about with security. The funny thing is, like, you know what gets attention? Yeah, that that drive-by browser vulnerability that affects 0.01% of browsers. Mm. And the funny thing is, majority attacks, they're going to be vulnerabilities. They're going to be unpatched vulnerabilities. They're going to be identity issues. They're going to be people that don't have multi-factor. Um, that's, that's it. And that's not sexy because that message seems to be done to death, yet it hasn't. Because mm. if you don't do this, everything else is just not that valid. Everything else is... A, you know, the cherry on top, mm. seam, sores, XDR, that's all well and good, right? But you just need to start with the foundational aspects. And certainly that's the approach we take when it comes to looking at things like Azure, which is let's absolutely, I'm here. Don't get me wrong. I will geek out forever in talking about cognitive services, AI, mm. sexy, sexy stuff, right? Really, really cool capabilities. But in order for us to be able to have our dessert, we've got to eat our greens. And we've got to, to eat our greens, we've got to get our landing zone right. Absolutely, I love it. I was vegan for many years, so I- <laughs> of course you were. Yes, so, I remember. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, no, definitely eating your greens is good uh, in an IT uh, space as well. Um, it makes you big and strong. So, uh, so that's very cool. So, actually, you touched on it uh, earlier about horror stories and, and oh, yeah. problems and, and what we need to avoid. So, you and I obviously know each other well. We've talked about this off air many, many times. Um, very enthusiastically, but. Let's talk about a couple of the common problems you see with people. I think we touched on one, like yeah. stakeholder interviews. If you don't do that, that's a massive mistake in, in a project, even if it's a very small project. Um, if you don't understand what those stakeholders are, and it might be a you know tiny company of 10 people, right? If you haven't interviewed maybe the CEO and yeah. maybe like one of the operations team and maybe a person in charge of a product or something, then you're not going to get the perspectives you need to make good recommendations. Um, and obviously, you need to present back your recommendations to those stakeholders as well. So the moment you don't do that interview and you just are that trusted person who just does everything, it, no matter how good you are, right? And we obviously rate ourselves and our teams, right? We can't do the best job without that step, like Absolutely. no matter how good we are. And I jump on top of that to say even conflicting requirements is probably the next one mm. where because requirements have been given in isolation, sometimes they conflict. Mm. And I can't do both. I can't be A and not A simultaneously. Mm. So sometimes, you know, it helps to get everyone in the same room. Mm. So we can say, hey, you've told me uh, you want hybrid. You've told me you want native. Mm. Please talk <laughs> because yeah, I cannot do both. Right? And we can go, oh, by the way, you've given us conflicting requirements. Here's the pros and cons. And here is potentially an alternative which achieves what you want, but is not what you asked for. Would that be something you'd consider? So all of these discussions and workshops, I think, are so important before you ever get to, you know, that logical or physical design phase. There's a, an idea when you develop, um, and that is that, you know, you before you've, most of the works we've done before you put a lot, um, you write any code at all, mm. right? This is going to be in mock-ups and user stories. And, you know, and the reason is pretty simple because it's really easy to update a mock-up. It is not so easy to update your code fundamentally mm. if you, once you've already started constructing it. And it's the same story here, right? Guys, it's kind of measure twice, cut once, right? Yeah, it may seem like we're slowing things down, but I guarantee you once we hit implementation, it goes real quick, mm. right? Because we've aimed so thoroughly 
we've gone, yep, we've got it. We're very comfortable. We know exactly what success looks like for you guys, and we're going to go at it. Because once we hit the ground running, like you said, we're damn good at what we do, right? So this part is easy. We've done it hundreds of times mm. before. But the truth is we need to get those requirements sorted out. We need to agree on those things. And the best change, time to change a design or change a is at the design within the design phase. Mm. Let's ignore agile for a moment. Um, but within the design phase, not when we're all of a sudden we're in we're in the cloud. We have AVS deployed, and you want to all of a sudden, you know what? I think we should pivot to new Danix. Yeah, that's too big of a change. I actually remember a, a horror story actually, and uh, it was I, I had a customer, a really great customer actually, by the way. So when they're listening, they'll know who it is. But uh, great customer, great people. But they were constrained by the organizational procedures, policies, whatever, budgets, all this sort of stuff and timelines. And they said, Josh, we need you to, to quote us on this piece of work. And I won't go too more, more specific than that. But they wanted a quote on this physical layer, right? Yeah. Can you design um, and implement this piece? I said, well, yes, we can definitely do that. But I need to do the conceptual phase first. Of course. I need to understand everything you're trying to achieve. And then I need to go logical. And then we can do physical. Here's the price for conceptual, right? Once conceptual is done, I can give you a, an estimate on logical and then here's physical, right? Because this was a very custom environment, right? This wasn't a, a cookie cutter by any stretch. So, I don't know. We just need the physical. I, I know that's what you want and that's what we're going to deliver, but this is step one, right? To get to the physical layer, we need to do step one, which is conceptual, step two, logical, and then step three is physical. No, no, we don't have time for that. I said, you don't have time not to. Like th this is going to go very bad because I know the drive. It was a ransomware request. Um, so yeah. very, very critical um, for, for a major organization. I said, cool. So if you want to avoid or mitigate the risk of ransomware, right, this is a significant organizational change, right? This is a big focus here. If you want me just to have a crack at building something that is going to mitigate some of those risks, sure, I can do that. Um, but... I'm going to make a ton of assumptions and the price is going to be through the roof, which is it's already going to be a big cost anyway for a project of that scale. Do you really want me just to go over and above and just do everything to the nth degree? That's probably not realistic and it probably can't be done in a timely manner anyway. So your actual date when this implementation is going to complete is likely going to come forward if you go and do it this route via a proper architectural methodology. Whereas if you just want me to have a guess and implement something, we're going to be constantly reworking, rejigging things, re-architecting, and it's going to end up in a dog's breakfast. Um, and I don't want to do that work. Um, and that's the mistake I see, is people just want to get to the implementation phase, which in my experience is not the biggest part of the project at all. No, it's not. Um, it may take the longest, right? There's reasons why it might take a long time, but... It, the most effort is the planning phase, the design phase, validating everything. And then at that point, actually the project's fairly easy. Physical phase is the easiest part of a project. It's a node. It's a relative one. And one thing I'd like to kind of highlight as well is that the approach you're taking there is also rare in IT. Mm. It, takes a, it takes a lot of skill to be able to tell a customer consistently no and in a nice way. Mm. And I guess what I would tell customers as well is don't I, I wouldn't i wouldn't even really expect that from my providers often it people will kind of be like oh, i'm not sure that's the right thing and that's the extent of the no mm. to have someone like yourself sit there and be like this is the reasons why we do this and this is why you can't do it and you said no like four times mm. and very you know and really were like 
willing to really dig your feet in because you, you know the importance of stuff. The truth is that most IT people won't do that. Mm. You know, there'll be a little, a little bit of resistance, but ultimately a lot of IT people are trained to, to do what they're asked to do, even if that doesn't make sense. Um, because, you know, as I like to point out, like a lot of people chose IT because they like to, to not deal with people. Mm. Um, so it's so the Especially <laughs> an architect's job is very much a people job. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and I, I think I'm lucky I have the personality where, you know, a bit of an extrovert. I, I like to deal with people, but at the same time, I can be introverted as well. I can be behind the scenes, sit in my home office by myself and just get stuff done. So I'm lucky I've kind of, that was just luck that my personality went that way. It's, a good, it's also like where the interface, where the bridge between, you know, the technical and the, and the business or the technical and the non-technical. And it's super important. Uh, to be able to, you know, and I guess like I said, for a customer, you know, to pull these sorts of things out of the people you're working with, because, you know, sometimes they may not say them. And I've had customers that I've worked with that I had to use every ounce of my, uh, you know, negotiation, consultation, you are now, so whatever you say, to be able to just walk through it. Uh, because, you know, some people come, sometimes they come with a bee in their bonnet. Um, you know, we had one particular customer who had insisted uh, that, uh, you know, the, let's say that they weren't happy with what we'd done and they wanted to work with another partner. And I said, look, I totally understand that there was an incumbent. There was some stuff that happened in the background that wasn't that good. And that was kind of, they were given a bit of a bum steer. But I do take umbrage at you calling us not so good. So I'm going to get on a call with you. Hmm. And so I got a call with that customer. And um, you know, you're in for a time when the video wasn't on. Hmm. <laughs> you know. <laughs> He's so, like, the video's not on. They don't want to talk to you. <laughs> they do not want to talk to me, right? Like, and so, and they were angry. And basically, what had happened was they'd got a cookie cutter outcome, but they hadn't participated in the requirement stage when they were asked for requirements. And then that complained that, well, what I got was cookie cutter, or what I got was standard. Mm -hmm. And we'd said, so I said, hey, that's totally true. What you said is true. What you got absolutely was more standard, but you didn't get to, you didn't actually participate in the requirements phase, mm -hmm. uh, but the person just wanted to list, do that kind of dump every single problem. This is all the issues I have. I'm going to have everything I'm going to say, then I'm going to leave. Mm. I wanted to do that one. And so it took every ounce of skill for me to be able to stop, walk. Let's walk through one point at a time. Mm. Have to be very calm and uncomposed as uh, paraphrasing something that's very, very important, right? So one of the most important skills that I, that I have or that I, I value, I should say, is the ability to paraphrase and seek agreement. Right, so I don't just don't just assume. I don't just assume just because I've, you've explained something to me and I think I understand it that I actually understand it. I'm going to parrot it back to you. And we went through this process. Just the first one, he wanted to go through everything. I said, "Please stop." I could write it all down, but the reality is that you'll probably disagree with my interpretation. Right? I could say all my objections. You want to get so what I want to do, and it's not rude. I'm going to interrupt you. I'm going to interrupt you when you get to a point, and I'm going to make sure that I understand that point. And so we got to the first the first point he was trying to make. And I had to no less than four times paraphrasing, and he was getting so angry, mm. so irate. He's in a stressed environment. He's he's not getting what he thought he was going to get. He's he's angry, right? It's not really at you. He's sort of just directing yeah. his anger and frustration. A hundred percent. Yeah. And so, and at the end of it, um, the funny part is when that customer starts to turn around, right? And all of a sudden, like, well, look, if your team was like you, you know, this wouldn't be a problem, right? Like, like, man, I had to force blood out of a stone here, hmm. right? Like I had to, you know, the amount of composure it takes to, you know, like I said, to, to be willing to just to restate a point four times until you that other person absolutely understands is, that's rare. 
you know, even in our circles, that would be rare, right? Um, yeah, very rare. <laughs> exactly, right? So, you know, that sort of stuff where, okay, but it just highlights the importance of what we do in terms of making sure we understand and not assuming we understand. Hmm. You know, I'm going to circle back. I'm going to take, you know, a lot of the attitude that I have is I'm going to take as long as it takes to understand your point. Hmm. If I have to be here for a day, I'll be here for a day until you feel understood and I understand you and you, not just that, you agree. Yeah. You agree that I understand. We've got a consensus. We've got to a point where we understand they've said their piece, you've said your piece, you've potentially written it down, it's on a whiteboard, like it's it's in a document. This is what we've agreed on. And I, I think this is probably our key takeaway actually from this podcast. Please, <laughs> yeah. all the customers and partner, we obviously do partner to partner as well. So please make sure that your stakeholders are involved at the start, that we can validate, clarify and agree on what we're trying to achieve from a business perspective first and then the technical team will agree from the technical perspective and then we move into the design phase and the verification phase and go from there. I think that's pretty much the the main mistake (laughs) is because if you do that correctly, you actually pretty much fix all those other mistakes. You know, you can make a technical error in implementation, but that's why we do peer reviews and things like that. So, I think the main success criteria for a project is stakeholder interviews and making sure we agree on what the outcome is going to look like Definitely. Um, and that they are measurable. This is something we, we talk about as VCDX methodology all the time is make sure something is measurable because the, the example I always give is a customer says, oh, I want VR. Okay. Measurable. Sorry, that's two words. It says not measurable. Or yes. I want active, active data centers. Yeah. <sighs> I can give you a data center over here running VMs and a data center over here running VMs. They're not even connected. You have active, active. And I say, no, 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 that's not what I meant. And I'm like, but that is active, active, right? That is a version of active, active. Now, what I think you mean is you want the VMs to be able to move between data centers and you want it to be done live and low latency. I think that's what you mean, but we need to clarify exactly what you mean because one version of active, active yeah. is very different to the other version of active active in terms of cost and scope and everything i would say oils aren't oils right and so often the um I it was a shell ad wasn't it oils aren't oils, 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 oils right yeah. like because this is it and they use the example of like cleaning the yarra so they talk about there's this analogy of if you want to clean the yarra and we're going to use hypothetical numbers here so don't call me out it'll cost you 50 million dollars to get to 90 percent hmm. it'll cost you hundred million to get to 95 mm. it'll cost you 200 million to get to 98 mm. so the question simply becomes how much of the area do you want to clean and what are you willing to accept absolutely and, and that's, and, that's the whole thing um, yeah and especially for these sorts of things with those customers active active mean that is there are so many different ways you can do that especially in azure in terms of um high availability i think is even more uh, probably amorphous in terms of what it means like until eventually it'll come down to to usually commercials yeah right like i can give you active active i can give you sub millisecond latency that and simultaneous transactions being written like to you know two different areas over a over a fiber link but maybe you don't like the price tag on that yeah and when we get to that stage if we've actually talked about what we're trying to achieve and the budget becomes the constraint then we can come back and say all right we need to change these because the price isn't changing, the outcome yes. has to be the same, but we need to change some of these requirements um, to be able to meet the price point. And I think that's, again, highlighting the point of these stakeholder interviews is making sure 
we get to that point where everyone understands what's constraining us. So if we have a constraint on budget, cool. What are you willing to compromise? If you're not willing to compromise your requirements, then your budget must increase. Yeah. Now, this is a simple discussion. It's not emotional. If yeah. this is the price for what you've asked, cool. You can't afford that. That's okay. Let's. I'll guide you on what I think is the best thing to compromise on, but you have to agree. You have to understand the implications of those. So I think big takeaway here for any any migration, any IT project, cloud, native cloud, AVS, whatever, stakeholder interviews with your architects and spend a lot of time doing that. Make it measurable and make sure it's well-documented and make sure it's traceable. And if you do that, the chance of your project being successful is going through the roof. If you don't do that, just, just don't, don't call us. We, we, <laughs> True. we don't want to do bad work. So, yeah, I think that pretty much sums it up. But, uh, yeah, well, I've had a lot of fun, Anthony, as, as we always do when we catch up. And uh, appreciate your time on the, on the podcast and look forward to doing some jujitsu with you in the near future. Me too. Thanks, Josh. Fantastic. Thank you.